sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to your home for the Politically Homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please tell one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows by word of mouth and we need yours. Now with Kevin McCarthy securing the role of Speaker of the House after only 15 tries and a number of other newsworthy events to talk about, I invited my old friend, the Data Monk, AKA the Data Monkey, AKA Data Mikey, AKA Anonymike, to come on for a lighthearted review of the past few weeks' events. Per usual, it devolved into a conversation as to what exactly is money. There is zero sense adding more detail to this introduction. You're just gonna have to experience the conversation for yourself. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. So let's start things off with the biggest story of the week. Did you watch any the of the- being conscripted into the uh, military? The Korean military? No, that's not the biggest Wait, story. Wait, what's this? No, I, they were? Not, that's not that's not the biggest story of the week, though. That's that's actually the old news now. They, well, uh, because what, all of them? One, one of the, well, they all have mandatory military service. Yeah. And, uh, and so the big question was like whether they'd be somehow exempted from it, I guess, or whether they would do it, or I don't know how the whole in, inner workings of that goes. But apparently they, in a, in a throwback to like, you know, America of a, of, a, of a younger time. Yeah. The biggest celebrities in South Korea are going on hiatus till 2025 so they can go join the military for a couple of years. Well, the one thing I would say is that the Korean military at least drafted them all at once. Because if they had done it with individual members and staggered it, that would have killed their career. And at least they go in the military for three years and then they have this comeback tour afterwards. You know, they, could, they, they don't have to wait for other members to get out before they can start touring. So that's a good thing. The downside is I wouldn't want to be one of those guys and like positioned on the DMZ because you know you'd have like the biggest target on you ever. <laughs> anyway, all right. Yeah. So that's not the but, news of the week. That's, that's, so that was the biggest story. Second biggest story. Second biggest it, story. It's really a misnomer. It really wasn't this week's story. I just happened to see an article in the New York Times talking about K-pop. Oh, anyway, well, good for right. him. All right. So what was Served. the biggest story of the week? Go, so the biggest story of the week was with the government, if I remember correctly. Yes. And the biggest story of the week was Kevin McCarthy's multiple elections to attain the role of Speaker of the House, which he finally succeeded at with 14 tries. Good for him. Did you, yeah. did you catch any of the proceedings at all? I, I guess I kind of now wish I had because apparently somebody lunged at Matt Gates. I guess there was like a, at some point there was like we went full like parliamentary people getting angry with each other and, and border, bordering on physical. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was it was Alabama Republican Mike Rogers who lunged at Matt Gates. And if there's one thing the Trump era has brought about that I found exceptionally valuable. It's old, out of shape white men starting physical altercations with 
people half their age. I think that has been the best outcome of the Trump era. And Mike Rogers is no exception. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Uh, yeah, so that did happen. It definitely got heated. The interesting thing I think about this story is the fact that we now again have a house that is very much beholden to the hardest, most extreme wing of the dominant party. So in this case, we have the Freedom Caucus that effectively has the Republican Party, the majority party, hostage on future policy discussions. And it's interesting for a number of reasons. I'll throw the first one out there, which is, as all this was going on, Mary Peltola, who's the representative for Alaska's at-large congressional district, floated the idea of moderate Democrats and Republicans forming a coalition majority to elect the speaker. So effectively, you'd have some moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans get together, either elect Kevin McCarthy or elect some other speaker they deem acceptable with some sort of power sharing agreement. So it wouldn't necessarily give Democrats everything they want, but it would give them more power to shape the legislative agenda of the incoming Congress than they have now, which would have been nice. Uh, it, the Peltola can do this because Alaska's system of elections is one known as Final Four. And Mike, I'll explain it to you with the understanding you and the audience probably already know this, but in Peltola's system of elections in Final Four, they have an open primary. The top four vote getters of that primary make it on the ballot, and they're determined by ranked choice voting. So as a result, you know, this is an electoral system that favors people who really know where the consensus opinion of their districts lie. And they don't necessarily have to kowtow so much to the party. So Peltola is kind of free to do what she wants. And there were a couple of other folks in Congress who supported it. Don Bacon of Nebraska and Marcy Kaptur of Ohio. So a Republican and a Democrat, respectively. I mean, yeah, it, it would have been, I guess it would have been very interesting if it had come about. Instead, they mm-hmm. just continued to double down on trying to bargain with uh, the holdouts and I guess I haven't seen a complete list, if anyone has one, of what's entirely been promised behind closed doors to all of this to get the votes they got. It doesn't bode well for for any of the major things that are going to have to be decided, like the debt ceiling. Yeah. And that that brings us to the current state, which is we don't have a coalition majority. What we have is we have a majority that's beholden to the most extreme members of its own party, one of the rule changes there was that one representative can effectively cast a vote of no confidence for the speaker. So one representative in the party caucus can say, hey, I don't want Kevin McCarthy to be speaker anymore, and then they run a whole new election. And that can happen anytime. So to your point- So, so 15 de- isn't really the final count. We're still waiting on when we have the next one. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. It's, that's just kind of like, that's the first round. This is going to keep happening over and over again. I think you bring up- a good point, which is the which is the debt ceiling. You know, this is that's probably the most critical vote Congress has to make out of all of them. And what we are guaranteed with the current setup is that we're going to really have an all or nothing legislature. You know, it's kind of like the either the Freedom Caucus gets its way 100 percent of the time, or nothing gets done. And if history is any indicator, nothing gets done. And there was a guy I, I spoke with in uh, an earlier episode, Nolan McCarty, 
professor out of Princeton. And one of the things he talked about was how political polarization has effectively left a Congress that has kind of abdicated its authority. So the problem isn't necessarily that Congress is polarized and that there are all these like, you know, all these crazy bills or crazy ideas about, you know, transgender kids, critical race theory, all this other stuff. The bigger problem is that Congress isn't exercising its authority to regulate. And so as a result, there's effectively a power vacuum that's being taken up by a bunch of malicious actors. And is it, you're, do you mm-hmm. think it's just because they can't seem to come to an agreement on how something should be regulated? Like they can't possibly pass legislation that would appropriately figure out regulations that could be supported by a majority? Is that, is that sort of the view? I think that's kind of it, yeah. So basically, when you when you look at the incentive structure right now for anybody in Congress, their incentive structure is not to, like, if you're a Republican, your incentive structure is to own the libs. And if you're a Democrat, your incentive structure is to own the conservatives. And so part of that is, yeah, like, you're never going to pass any meaningful regulation through Congress because their incentives are not set up to get along. The other part of that is that it gives... Congress plausible deniability when it comes to why they didn't take action in certain instances. So one of the things McCarty talks about in his work is how as income inequality increases, political polarization increases in kind. And what you see is you see one or more parties focused on really serving the needs of a smaller and smaller constituency. So one of the examples he cited, and again, I can't be kind of nonpartisan or both sides about this because it's just what his research says. But one of the things he talks about is how, as the Republican Party's focus has been on wealthy people, and as we find there are fewer and fewer wealthy people with income inequality continuing to rise, they have to figure out other ways to expand their base. And the best way to expand their base are these intractable culture war issues that are never going to be resolved. And so anytime the word critical race theory comes up or anytime the word like woke culture or transgender or whatever comes up, anytime these culture war issues come up, it's effectively a way to expand their base beyond the people who are receiving the economic benefits of their policy who are fewer and fewer as time goes on. Right. I don't know if I answered your question there, but that's... No, but I think it has me thinking back to the, the episode we did ages ago on political polarization in general, mm-hmm. because this idea that the last time this happened like, was in 23, I think they said, right? Mm-hmm. If I have that correct, it was 1923. And prior yeah. to that, it was sort of the mid-19th century that they went, I mean, the Congress went a whole like third of a year or something without being able to sit because they couldn't finalize and swear everybody in because they couldn't get a speaker. And that would sort of fit with when we saw extremes of polarization, you saw this kind of start to happen, right? Because the extremes in each party then assert enough control and establish their demands such that uh, they can hold up even the most basic procedural things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think think the, the big difference is and this is something that isn't being talked about a lot, is that in 1923, the consequences of the federal government being at a standstill weren't as substantial as they are today. 
You know, the, the federal government at the time was very small. I think most people's interaction with the federal government it consisted solely of visiting the post office. Like that was right. that was literally it. It was the post office and a military and you know, maybe like the, the Congress gift shop and like that was the federal government right there. That was like right. the extent of it. You know, after the Great Depression it expanded. And one of the big one of the big questions I'm asking myself now is we are obviously at an impasse. We're at a point where things are going to change substantially. We are at that New Deal slash Civil War slash American Revolution point where the role of government is going to change and what we think of the role of federal government is going to change. And my big question is, is it going to be a retraction? Is it going to be one where it goes back to this sort of pre-New Deal where the government is less activist? Or... Does it grow? Does it get more active in Americans' lives? And I don't know what the answer to that is, but I, I certainly think as the economy gets more globalized and interconnected, I, and as things that take place in New York affect the lives of people in Ohio and Montana and globally, I don't, I don't quite see how we have a less activist federal government. I really don't. Maybe you disagree. No, I, 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 it would be more compelling listening if I did, but I don't think I have a, an alternate take to that. I mean, yeah. It, if you look at, just think about it this way, the government influence in the economy is going to continue to increase just because I suspect the deficits will continue to increase. I mean, right, we're mm-hmm. forecasted to probably run about a 5% deficit next year. That's at a time when unemployment is extreme, exceedingly low. You know, it's kind of hard to imagine that, you know, in recessions, if, if one was to come up, like that only expands deficits typically as do the resulting then fiscal responses to a, a downturn in the economy. So it's sort of this question of like, if this is your baseline at 5% deficit, it's really only gets bigger. Why does that matter? The only reason that matters is because it just tells you how the size of the government relative to the, the economy, right? I mean, so that's going to just continue to, to sort of, I think, grow in size. But as the funding needs go up, so do interest rates and interest rate costs become a part of the budget, which expands deficits, right? So, so the counter the counter force could be, you know, what Japan has done, which is yield curve control, right? Which is to effectively mm. control the rate of their borrowing by the central bank owning, buying the bonds. Well, that's, I mean, they own the majority of the market in Japan, so... And we've already done a significant amount of that in the last few years. And I suppose we could go back into an attempt to, to grow you know, the balance sheet more. The question becomes then just whether or not that impacts your outlook for inflation, which is obviously what the central bank is now sort of most concerned about. Can, can you tell me how that works? How a central bank goes about buying government debt? Because I think a lot of times we we use the term printing money, mm-hmm. but I don't think we really understand how that means. So what are the mechanics of that? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of detail. I don't want to get totally, because one, I'd probably screw it up, but two, there's, some, there's a lot of like just inside baseball mechanics to that that are probably not super necessary to understand. The most basic thing mm-hmm. to understand is just that when the Federal Reserve writes a check to buy something, it creates those dollars. Right. It doesn't okay. have to it doesn't have to borrow them from somewhere. It doesn't have to, you know, doesn't have to earn them at a job so it can pay back its credit card, like or buy it or buy a car. Like it literally has the money tree. So 
if it wants to buy bonds, it just prints more money. And so that's how you expand the money supply by just buying things in the market and putting and putting more liquidity into the market. So can I, I'm going to pause there. So basically the treasury authorizes the debt and then the Fed basically says, oh, I want to buy that debt. And here, I'm just going to print some more dollars to buy that debt effectively. Is that how it works? Uh, or yeah. Congress authorizes the debt, the treasury issues the bonds, and then yeah, is mean, that they, how it works? They, well, I mean, they don't have to, they only have to authorize it once it's kind of reached the limit, right? Otherwise, okay. they just the, the ongoing functioning in the government implies that you're having to issue debt to pay for things. So it's just yeah. an ongoing that that's just cash flow management for running the federal government and all the different things that yeah. it needs to do, right? So there's no real connection, to a deliberate connection between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury in that sense. The Treasury just is managing issuing bonds to pay for things and paying out, you know, what needs to get covered, right? Federal mm-hmm. employees, any other things that need to get paid for. Now, or benefits that go out or any other things, right? Now, the Federal Reserve separately, right, it has control of the money supply. So if they would like, if they would like to lower interest rates, they can buy more of that debt, put more money out there into the economy. If they want to raise interest rates, they can restrict that money supply and stop buying things and let the buyers and sellers set mm-hmm. the price of that interest and it goes higher. So they set monetary policy, sets the what they call the target rate for federal funds, which is an overnight rate. But that's just like, that's the base rate of where, you know, the most, the most short-term money there is, right? And then mm-hmm. everything else, all other borrowing is based off that. Yeah, yeah, which kind of like gets back to some of the conversations I had with Jed Dorsheimer yeah. earlier on, which is effectively we've spent so much time manipulating the value of money that money no longer seeks its the most productive investment. It doesn't it money effectively if you look at the last decade of gains that people have had in the economy, it's really been more on placing bets on which sectors of the economy benefited the most by the inner machinations of the Federal Reserve than which were actually going to produce more. Correct? Well, yeah, I think I agree with that. I think it's sort of a question of like, right, is that just a function of, it has gone to the most, quote, productive investments in the sense that the productivity of an investment is how much it'll you'll earn on it, right? So yeah. That, if that was maybe the right strategy in that with given the backdrop, the question is whether it was investing in the things that are most sort of thermodynamically productive to, you know, improving the long-term sort of economic potential of the, the U S and the welfare of the citizens of the U S right. Like that's, that's, yeah. that's a question like that, that could be debated more. Right. Like, I think, but I, I could, yeah, I could rephrase it too. And I, I could give some harder examples, which is if you look at the, the FANG stocks, so Facebook, Alphabet, Apple, Netflix, and Guh. Who's the Guh? I don't even know. All right. Who's a Google? Uh, sorry, the, Google. Go, no, because Alphabet's Google. So, oh, sorry. Uh, Alphabet. Yeah, yeah, wait. So, uh, Facebook, Alphabet, and now it's really Mang because it's Meta. So, Meta. Uh, Alphabet. Oh, so I think it's still, Amazon. No, it, oh, sorry, yeah, I should know this. I'm, I'm really I'm being sounding ignorant. Okay, G is still Google. 
because it was Amazon. Oh, Google. Apple. It was Apple. A- Amazon, Google. Apple. Okay, so it's the Mang stocks. So Meta, Apple, Amazon, Google, and it's I'm doing. It, I'm I'm butchering this. At any rate, if you look at it's if Facebook, you look at I, I refuse. Yeah, to use, I, I refuse. Oh, to use Meta. It's just so. Yeah, it's so obnoxious. I am just 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 aside here. So uh, one of my kids got an Oculus for Christmas. <laughs> And I am staring right now at a 13-year-old boy ensconced in the metaverse. I don't know what he's doing, but he looks like freaking dance, Spider-Man. Dancing around in a in a, oh. in a room by himself. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, he just ducked. It's like he's fighting somebody. Uh, so <laughs> at daughter, any rate. My daughter used it at a friend's house and full-on punched somebody in the face accidentally. I, I, I was like... I was playing, I got into this one game. He has this one game called Deism, where you're basically God. And you can literally get down on all fours and look at like your little people. So I'm doing it and I'm thinking it's really cool. And meanwhile, everybody else in the house is just seeing me like crouch down with these goggles. Like, I mean, it's it's really bizarre. But that's that's another story. So if you look at any of the if you look at any SaaS stock out there, you know, so you look at Meta for example, or you look at Google, which aren't exactly SaaS, but they're online, right? You know, none of them, the market has rewarded growth over profit. The market has rewarded expansion over profit. And so really, if we want to talk about like where in productive investments, so they've been very productive in terms of providing return on investment, but they haven't returned a profit. You know, they have not, they're they're, they're literally, we have a bunch of not profitable businesses that now are going to have to figure it out. I I think, frankly, I think Meta, I think Google, I think a lot of these larger companies are going to figure it out. I think they have the ability to get profitable. But again, as an investor, you really haven't had to look at like, can this company actually self-sustain without the money supply nudging it along? Yeah, that was I mean, really convoluted. No, no, no. I think I mean I'd say there's a couple of things there. I mean, and and obviously, you know, I'm not trying to opine on the value of any of these things. It's more just a question. Of like a lot of tech companies, actually, interestingly, a lot of those companies do generate a lot of cash. Now, however, I would say that they've, I think, where they've gotten a huge benefit is partly just from um, they pay out a lot of stock compensation, right? So then, they, mm. so there's a strange phenomenon where they sort of are able to generate a lot of cash flow, even if they're not showing accounting earnings, but then they, but then they buy back stock in the market. So it's just a strange thing where the expanding money supply has allowed them to compensate employees using the financial markets. And so mm-hmm. therefore making their own profitability look better. Yeah. Right. Which, even yeah. to your point, on accounting basis, they're typically not really earning as much. But even from a cash flow perspective, it's sort of helped by the fact that they can pay out a lot of stock to employees. So as long as the stock, as long as the stock prices are going up, that sort of is like a free way of compensating your, your employees. Got it. Got it. I want to topic. We are. We are. I want to jump. I want to jump for a second because there's a couple things. I, there's a couple things I want to get to, which is, you know, we spent a little bit of time on the money supply here. I think this opens up a great opportunity for us to dunk on our least favorite Nobel Prize winner, Paul Krugman. Because what's more fun than two non-Nobel Prize winning people dunking on somebody who's won the Nobel Prize? I mean, that's really how the internet <laughs> functions. 
Uh, yeah, but you know, I mean, hasn't the hasn't the the hasn't the the really like the the shine come off the Nobel Prize generally over the oh, years? without a doubt. I, I mean, mean, when they when they gave it to Obama before he'd actually done who, anything, <laughs> he hadn't even yeah, exactly. And then like he started launching drone strikes in foreign countries, and it's like give him another Nobel Prize before he kills again. You know, it was like, it was absolutely asinine. So yes, absolutely. But Paul Krugman has been a big fan of modern monetary theory, which is the idea that, well, we can just have as much money as we want because the U.S. prints it. Yeah. Which is, is that officially like no longer a valid theory now that inflation I, has finally crept in or are people still kind of well, like clinging uh, on to so it? So I've sent you down a rabbit hole. I haven't heard anybody mention it recently, right? So yeah. I think it's, um, you know, I think they quietly, once inflation was topping 9%, all the people who said we'd never get inflation have kind of quietly just stopped yapping about it. I think it's just like, it stems back to this, you know, I sent you down this rabbit hole of all of the uh, biophysical economics. Parts, right? mm-hmm. So you've talked to Carrie King, you've talked to Jed, you've talked to some other folks around this area. So the point of that was to highlight something I brought up in the past on, on this, which is that, no, yes, I am an idiot. You are a slightly less of an idiot. <laughs> We're uh, together. I don't know about do, that. Together, we don't sum to one Nobel Prize winner, but I'm going to have the, yes. the hubris to say that I think it's irrelevant because I just think that neoclassical economics is just fundamentally flawed. And so you can be the greatest genius at this thing that's fundamentally flawed, but why do I care? Because you, you misunderstand the, the entire point of money. Like, and I've said this before, like on this, on this podcast, I think like that, you know, I can ask any business school grad, I can ask any economic professor, you can do it. Just to test this, what you do it next time you interview an economist, right? Who's maybe not a biophysical economist, but and just ask them, just say, hey, just for say, right, just you know, what is money? Right. And they're gonna give you the same answer every single time. And they're gonna name, well, it's a medium of exchange and a, a measure of relative value and a store of value. And again. The only reason any of it has any value is it ultimately has a claim on work in the real world. Mm-hmm. And the implication behind sort of, you know, something like neoclassical economics is built entirely on relative scarcity. It has, it never conceives of absolute scarcity of anything. So if you think there's an absolute, so, and that may be fine. If there is really ultimately no scarcity to anything, then they're right. If it's, but if you think we're running up against any kind of limits of anything anywhere, then that's, it's just flawed from the first, the first like basic building block. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It makes perfect sense. The, the analogy I use is the real economy is a pizza. And if everybody needs, let's say one slice of an eight slice pizza, to be satisfied, that pizza feeds eight people. If you slice that into 16 slices, that doesn't mean you can double the number of people who can eat that pizza. And I feel like that's kind of where, where a lot of economists go wrong is they don't realize like you can, whatever, whatever you want to do to goose the money supply is not going to change the crop yields in Nebraska. 
right? Right. And I think it, oh boy, this is like going to be a, a really, it's probably going to be ultimately a metaphor. It's not going to work very conveniently, but, um, but yeah. no, but it sort of implies that the more, the more, the more money we print, that there will mm-hmm. be just more pizzas ultimately. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like that's exactly it. It's like, it's like we'll just print more money and we'll print double the money and somehow the economy will figure out how to make double the pizzas. I actually, since we're talking about money too, there are a couple of other things I wanted to chat with you about. We're dunking on people. So, and this is a story we, you and I didn't get a chance to chat about, but since we're talking about fictional money, we should probably touch upon the FTX implosion because oh, I think that's a nice intersection of a lack of, regulatory oversight by a polarized Congress yeah, and a group of people who don't understand what money means or how it works. So that's an interesting point. I mean, I'll probably make a statement that someone else would disagree with, but I think my, yeah. I think I'm thinking about this correctly, that if, if, if Congress isn't doing anything from a regulatory perspective, it sort of pushes all regulatory decisions to agencies to make. Yeah. Right. Therefore, it increases an incentive for regulatory capture, which is to see what what influence you can have on those agencies, right? So, therefore, example being that there's any number of pictures of SBF taking selfies and things with the CFTC. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, So, yeah. Boy, there's a lot of things to talk about there. I mean, from a functional level, I'd say two two things. One, it, it took us like thousands of years to get to the financial system we have currently, whether or not it's good or bad. It's through a series of ups and downs and crises and, and expansions and other things that we've come to the, the current system we have. I have plenty of issues with some of the things we've done. You know, I don't love some of the decisions we've made, but like it or hate it, it's a relationship that's been built over a lot of years, right? Like it's a mm-hmm. it's something that it took us a long time to sort of get to where we are today. With the introduction of blockchain and this idea of cryptocurrencies, we sort of set out to have a bunch of tech bros like try to recreate the financial system without any regulatory oversight of any kind under this idea that it's like this libertarian fever dream of this money that the government doesn't have control of. Oh boy. Uh, it's ended about as well as we probably could have, <laughs> should have expected to, to end. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, it ended with that one of the biggest players in it who was, who brought a bunch of celebrities into it. I mean, God, they were, they were taking down the, the sports stadium in Miami, right? The, the naming rights, they were all over the Super Bowl with their ads with like Larry David, Tom Brady, and like all this, like, and the whole thing is ultimately just take all the technology out of it. It was just ultimately a Ponzi scheme, right? And they're like, this is exactly the kind of stuff that, you know, we create financial regulation to avoid, right? There, there's a couple things I think about this story. First and foremost, there have only been two times when I've seen the story of a 29-year-old billionaire planning to disrupt X market. And that was Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos and Sam Bankman-Fried 
of FTX. So the first lesson for everybody is anytime the financial press is talking about a 29-year-old billionaire, run in the other direction because that thing is going to explode, right? I, I think that's uh, the, that's number the one. The exception that proved the rule is probably Zuckerberg, which probably Zuckerberg. Yeah, and, but but I would say too, there was more hype about the product mm-hmm. than there was about Zuckerberg. Yeah. If only, you hear about the billionaire, already, yeah, very big. Yeah. It, if if you hear about the billionaire before you hear about the company that made the billionaire run. Number two, I think, is that, and this is something that I haven't heard from anybody else. Bitcoin was the solution to a problem nobody was asking for. So the person who made Bitcoin goes by the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto, right? He saw the financial crisis and said, we can't trust federal banks with our money, so I'm going to make this money that replaces the need for a central bank, right? Nobody asked for it. Nobody asked him. Like, hey, Satoshi, why don't you make this thing that'll get rid of the central banks? Nobody asked him. He just created it. He created blockchain. And since then, blockchain has been a solution looking for a problem, right? I do think there's some cool stuff you can do with blockchain. But let's keep in mind, it was something created to solve a problem that somebody kind of imagined that really exists, but not the the general economy as a whole hasn't bought into. Yeah, and, I, um, talked, and so this is sort of yeah. the other kind of thing. Like, so governments have control of the military and they have control of their currency. And I, it's they don't really very easily want to give up either one. So uh, the idea that this was all going to go smoothly toward this crypto world where we just mm-hmm. trade and conduct all our business in in this currency that's not controlled by any government, like maybe, but it's not going to go easy. That's for sure. It's not going to be this like instant disruption where it's just like, yeah, and then we all opened a Facebook account and we're like, well, then we all just moved our money to crypto. You're like, no, (laughs) it's not going to, not going to go. It's not the same. Yeah. Like that's a big deal. And I don't think the, I don't think governments would very easily be comfortable with that. So anyway, I, that, yeah. The other quite thing that comes up though, and this is sort of around this point about these making of these celebrity billionaires of 29 year olds is like clearly, ultimately, he's a fraud, right? Yes. So we certainly seem to be in an era of increased hucksterism to sort of tie this back to the the, the vote debacle of the last few days in the yeah. House of Representatives. I mean, we've reached a point where a lot of even these polarizing representatives who are ostensibly part of these parties are really just performance artists and like selling Ugh. like a lot of, you know, to your point, selling cultural war narratives and, and mm-hmm. there's no like fierce ideology there. It's more that just a, a fierce desire for celebrity. Yeah. I think performance art is the best way to put it. And I think that, has become the way you gain power in Washington now. It's it's interesting, but one of the observations I made over the last couple of election cycles is small dollar donations, which everybody tends to applaud because, hey, it gives the little guy as much sway as big corporations, has actually contributed to this so much more than people know. Because the top earners for their respective parties are people like AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, 
you can, I mean, look, I could make an argument as to which one's more credible. I'll pass on that because people are going to disagree. That out of the way, both are able to secure a lot of funding for their party by drawing attention to themselves. And the way they draw attention to themselves is they make these very, very brash statements, to, sit, to, to put it lightly. They're polarizing figures. They've got a huge bunch of detractors and a bunch of fans. And, but neither of them really have a track record of producing legislation. It's not like Ted Kennedy, who, love him or hate him, produced a lot of meaningful legislation and brought a lot home for the state of Massachusetts. Or even like, look at Mitch McConnell, even if we want to flip that on its head, right? Love him or hate him, he's done stuff. He's passed legislation. He's, he's whipped votes, right? Marjorie Taylor Greene and AOC got elected in very safe districts for their party. And they've continued to win because they're polarizing figures who can pull in a lot of money. So the party loves them for that. And I'm not saying we have to get rid of small dollar donations, but let's just say it's a double-edged sword here. And and I think to kind of sew all these topics we've been talking about together, you've talked a little bit about the money supply. We've talked a little bit about things like cryptocurrency, lack of regulation, the fact that we have this Congress that's increasingly made up of performance artists who are asleep at the wheel when it comes to regulation and their biggest, greatest power that's been given to them in the Constitution is the power of the purse, the power of America's debt. And the U.S. dollar, love it or hate it, it's used in 60% of financial transactions worldwide. The global economy functions on a stable dollar. And I'll, I'll throw this out there with the understanding, Mike, you might have to defer any comment on it, but my big question is, if we look at the global economy, the single point of failure is the U.S. dollar. And if we look at the U.S. dollar, the single point of failure is a Congress that took four days to elect a Speaker of the House and is headed towards a debt ceiling impasse, right? The only time the U.S. credit rating has ever been reduced is when we refuse to take out more debt. The market loves us taking out debt. They don't have a problem with that. They have a problem when we can't get our act together enough to authorize more. And feasibly, that's, that could be where we're headed. Yeah, I mean, we can you say it? Can, can, I, go I, on. I, go. It will be very interesting to watch. <laughs> there there uh, you go. It'll be very, I, yeah. Mostly just because I think the players involved don't fully understand the implications of their actions. So it's, No. Because it's very hard. I mean, you've spent a lot of podcasts trying to get your arms around a very complicated system. And even like I, yeah. you and I talk about it. And I realize when we talk sometimes, even my sort of limits of my knowledge about it, right? And so the idea that, not to pick on somebody, but I'll pick on him because his face is in, on the newspapers right now. But like that Matt Gates fully understands like the implications of everything he's, he's doing in a, in a complex uh. connected system. <laughs> Is lunacy. Like, I mean, like, I don't understand all my actions that are complicated. <laughs> so, you know, the system. I, like, so I, I don't, I, I really think we're uh, maybe thinking that there's more there, there than there really is. I don't know. Anyway, Matt Gates, Ron DeSantis. Oh, they got the whole uh, cast. Of, it's like a bunch of Dick Tracy villains. The Noodle Man, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> Blockhead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, 
please consider leaving it a nice review. You can also get a summary of this episode and other issues of the day by signing up for YDHTY's email newsletter at ydhty.com news. Now, after listening to this conversation again, here are my big takeaways. The first off is K-pop is vulnerable to forced military service in South Korea. The second is that the US federal government is funded through deficit spending, which is financed via debt in the form of bonds of which the Federal Reserve can buy infinity with its money printing powers, which is a fairly sweet arrangement. The next takeaway, and this is something I've said before, is that the single point of failure in the global economic system is a currency whose fate is currently in the hands of polemic figures who don't mind playing chicken by defaulting on government debt. And if I were to predict the black swan event that would have huge implications at home and abroad, this would be it. Per usual, the answer starts at home and changing the structures that currently reward said polemic figures will provide us with fewer of them playing Russian roulette with the nation's finances. You know what my suggestion is. I would be interested in yours. So email me at heydan, H-E-Y-D-A-N at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com. I would love to hear from you. As always, music courtesy of Quellertac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement is the Admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Adios.